to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou. I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. Hope everybody had a good weekend. Hope you had a good weekend, Michelle. We have a lot to talk about today. We're going to talk about the latest developments in Ukraine, the current and future state of the economy, and what's new in New York, in Israel, Washington, China, and elsewhere. But first, let's start with those developments in China. The Chinese government announced today a near total lockdown in Shanghai, its largest city, because of a surge in cases of COVID there. This is not a stay home and watch TV lockdown. This is a serious and total lockdown akin to what the Chinese government did in Wuhan two years ago. Everybody who tests positive for COVID, even if you're asymptomatic, you have to go to a hospital. A friend of mine who lives in Shanghai uh, told me yesterday that the hospitals there are full to bursting and there are already critical shortages of vegetables, of all things. Oh, no, that's the worst. He likened this vegetable shortage to what happened in the U.S. with toilet paper two years ago. There just aren't any vegetables. Wow. Yeah, crazy. It's weird because you can't really hoard vegetables for that long. No, not for that long. You know, it depends on the vegetable, obviously, but, huh. Yeah, and if you think about it, If China's locked down, it's going to further disrupt the supply chain uh, here in the U.S. You know, if nobody's able to eat any vegetables for a while, the need for toilet paper might be. I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm sorry, everyone, for that. Just had to. Listen, as an aside, the first time my (laughs) dad went to Greece. This cannot be good. Okay, go on. First time my dad went to Greece in 1960 to our our ancestral village to meet with. uh, with with relatives, to see relatives for the very first time, he noticed very quickly that they had no toilet paper. Mm. Uh, But what they did have was uh, a copy of the Sears catalog. Oh. And he said you had to tear out a page and crumple it all up, flatten it out, crumple it up again and again until it was nice and soft. And then that's what you used, the Sears catalog. Yeah, have a leisurely time. And there were like a thousand pages back then. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, the governments of Australia, New Zealand, and the United States said over the weekend that they are, quote, deeply alarmed by a new security agreement between China and the Solomon Islands. The Solomons confirmed on Friday that they are in talks with China about a mutual defense pact, which could allow the Chinese to construct a military base there. The Solomon Islands, if people don't um, know just right off the top of their heads, They're just off the north coast of Australia. They're very, very tiny. It's a very tiny little country. And they've long been dependent on the Australians for their uh, national defense. Australia's foreign minister said on Sunday that the country is particularly concerned that a Chinese military base would undermine the security of the entire region. And the New Zealanders jumped in and said exactly the same thing. They're panicked mm-hmm. that the Chinese are going to build a a military base there. I mean, you know, the only military base I've ever seen that was Chinese, it was the oddest thing. It's a joint Chinese-American military base in, in Djibouti? Djibouti. Yeah. Yeah. And there's just like a little fence down the middle and one side's Chinese and the other side's American and everybody gets on just fine. I mean, in a way, like one, on one hand, of course, I do, uh, I understand how why people don't want military bases coming closer and closer sure. to their countries. On the on the other hand, it does feel a little bit like, well, hey, other people have been feeling this for a very long time, oh, right? Yes. How do it is a is a little bit of how do you like it? 
right? Oh, yes. How do you justify, you know, everyone's supposed to be just fine with one side doing it uh, and the other side, no, oh, no. How, how, do, how dare you infringe upon my feelings here? Yes. Yep. That's why it's kind of interesting to me that they're so upset and so up in arms. Mm-hmm. We do this to people all the time. Okay. Meanwhile, the Philippines government issued a diplomatic complaint this weekend after a Chinese Coast Guard ship conducted a close maneuver that nearly hit a Filipino naval ship in the South China Sea. The ships came within 65 feet of one another, which is pretty close, you know, with these big ocean-going military ships. China claims this area of the South China Sea where this happened. But, and this is so interesting to me, the same area is also claimed by the Philippines, Brunei, Malaysia, Taiwan, and Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. They all claim it. Yeah, and this so these is the things thing. are bound to happen. This is the thing. Like looking into the South China Sea, I used to have to report on this a lot and report on the UN. You know, there was a uh, the Philippines versus China. They were they were contesting a, a one particular area, um, and the uh, an international body voted in favor of uh, China, but the Philippines has kind of declined. They're still con- negotiating with China on their own terms. But yeah, all of these different. It's sort of not. It's the, every patch of contested water is not contested by two parties, but like by three or six. Yeah. Yeah. Funny. You know, another thing that's funny to me is the United States uh, has lots of international border disputes, Mm -hmm. which I only learned of recently. For example, there's a there's a little teeny rock in the in the Caribbean that nobody even lives on that's claimed by both the United States and Haiti. And we've been fighting about it for, you know, a hundred years. I didn't know that yeah. at all. I made a mistake. Now, I, I'm sorry. Now we're just going down a rabbit hole. But I, I taught English for a long time. And uh, I had a class that had a bunch of East Asian students. And I think I was following some curriculum. It was like, get your students to write basic reports on some, you know, some, some kind of innocuous topic. And one of the topics was islands. And a Korean student got up to give a presentation on some Korean islands and a Japanese student. Le- there was almost a brawl in the middle of the classroom because a Japanese student left up because she, of course, was talking about some islands that are uh, hotly contested, I guess, between uh, South Korea and Japan. And the Japanese student would simply not stand for such an affront. And we had to abandon the whole lesson plan. <laughs> Just go, let's, let's talk about our families instead. Yeah. You know, the last time Greece and Turkey almost went to war was 1996. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like, within minutes of war, and it was only because of the direct involvement of Bill Clinton that they didn't uh, fight. And it was over um, a a rock in the Aegean called Emea. It's it's a Greek island. It was negotiated to be Greek in the uh, Treaty of Lausanne from 1920, 21, whatever that was. And... uh, a Turkish, a small Turkish Coast Guard vessel landed on the island. All that's on this island are like a dozen goats. That's it. And um, they put a Turkish flag. They took down the Greek flag and they put a Turkish flag. And the Greeks went completely bananas. So they sent half the Greek Navy over there and they tore down the Turkish flag and put the Greek flag. And then the Turks sent a warship and the Greeks sent a warship. And then Bill Clinton had to call and say, just back off everybody. So this notion about islands, this is kind of a big deal. You know, one of the things that I learned when I was on uh, rotation to the State Department uh, was the definition of an island, right? There's actually an international legal definition of an island. Okay. It has to be above water for at least eight hours a day. 
right? So there are a lot of um, shoals or sandbars in the Arabian Gulf um, that are not technically islands, but then are claimed by both Bahrain and Qatar, Qatar and Iran, you know, the United Arab Emirates and Oman, but they're not really, they don't fall under international protections because they're not above water mm -hmm. for a full eight hours a day. Everybody's got problems. Everybody's got problems. Yeah. I've mentioned before, uh, I had to demarch the, uh, the Bahrainis over this issue that sounds stupid, but was actually really important to us. I've mentioned it on, on my other show. Uh, and it was uh, a dispute that we were having with the Canadians over whether or not scallops are fish. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. a big deal. I mean, there are millions of dollars worth of uh, seafood that's at stake here. And we're constantly having to fight the Canadians over what is a fish. I cannot believe you're trying to get away from the biggest news, the biggest news of the day. The biggest and most exciting news of the day yeah. was from yesterday. The Oscars took place in Los Angeles. There was no apparent theme uh, to the Oscars this year, at least to the winners this year. Mm -hmm. Coda, the film from Apple Plus, won Best Picture. Uh, Jane Campion won Best Director for Power of the Dog. Will Smith won Best Actor for King Richard. Jessica Castain, Chastain won Best Actress for The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Nobody cares. See, that's <laughs> the thing. Cares. Nobody but cares. But the most crazy thing that happened was presenter Chris Rock mm -hmm. came out on stage and made a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith, mm -hmm. who was sitting in the front row with Will Smith, her husband. Mm -hmm. The joke was innocuous. All he said was, Jada, glad to see filming for G.I. Jane 2 is over, right? Because in yeah, yeah. G.I. Jane, uh, Demi Moore shaved her head when she joined the military. Jada Pinkett Smith suffers from alopecia mm -hmm. and she's bald. Mm -hmm. Okay. It seemed like a harmless joke. But Will Smith, who had first chuckled at it, yeah. looked at his wife. She was livid. He got up out of his seat, walked on stage, and slapped Chris Rock across the face as hard as he possibly could. Yeah, which is outrageous. Outrageous. I mean, Absolutely you know. outrageous. And poor Chris Rock, you know, to his credit, his only reaction was, okay, mm -hmm. okay. And he sort of took a step back. Yeah. The sound for this whole incident was bleeped out. The press today said that this was the longest continual bleep in the history of television. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I would like to uh, be in a position to challenge that someday. Yeah, yes. I well, mean, but, look, but it wasn't bleeped out overseas. Uh, yeah, of course. And on uh, Japanese television and Australian television, mm -hmm. they broadcast it. It went to Twitter and it went on fire. Yeah. Uh, the whole thing was funny, sad, exciting, disappointing, all at the ridiculous. same time. Yeah, ridiculous. I just, Will Smith then getting up and give, accepting an award yes. and saying like, you know, in this industry, we're judged and cut down and blah, blah, oh, blah, which please. is all true, right? I can imagine it is not pleasant to be treated well, like we're, a, we're like a ham hawk. Criticized you know? too. But also that happens to lots of people who are making $7 an hour. Yeah. So it was a little bit of a like, oh, poor, oh, poor me. Everyone's judging me, but whatever. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, anyway. Yeah. It was, I was pretty yeah. crazy. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Pretty crazy. I know we've got our first guest lined up here. Oh, we do. Okay. Then we are going to go to our first guest. You are listening to Political Misfits. We're live in D.C. We have a lot to tell you about today, so stay tuned. We'll be right back.
Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking a little bit about uh, some of Joe Biden's new plans for taxing the wealthy. Uh, I say new plans. We have seen them before. Something similar proposed by other people, whether uh, this new proposed tax has a better chance of coming to fruition, we will find out. We'll talk about uh, possible other harbingers of a recession and uh, a little bit about what happens to global economic recovery if countries aren't on the same page in terms of how they handle new COVID outbreaks. You know, we're looking at China locking down Shanghai, as you said, um, but that's not only going to affect China, but the rest of the world. And sort of just shows you you can't get on the same page as to how to deal with anything like it does. It just continues. Right. It continues and continues. We are joined now by John Jeter. He's an author and two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist. He's got two decades of journalistic experience and is a former Washington Post bureau chief. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Michelle. Let's talk about this new wealth tax that is it's being described as a tax on billionaires, but I guess it would also actually affect any household that is worth more than $100 million, which is, you know... I'm not crying for for them, <laughs> you know, good, good, tax them. Uh, but I guess the idea is that households worth more than 100 million would pay a rate of at least 20% on their income, as well as on unrealized gains in the value of their liquid assets like stocks and bonds. And uh, the New York Times notes that these are assets that can accumulate value for years, but they're only taxed when they're sold. And so this would seem to be uh, a way to solve some of the problems presented by taxing income uh, in that the super wealthy don't really need much income at all. Uh, but we have also seen similar proposals put forth uh, by the likes of Elizabeth Warren and some others. So I wonder, you know, how how significant the impact of this tax could be and also how likely you think it is to become law? Well, I, I think it's a. Uh... I, I read somewhere that this could possibly raise $215 billion annually, I think, in new revenues. I mean, that sounds like a lot. Yeah. So that's nothing to sneeze at. Um, it's definitely a step in the right direction. Um, and, and you know, were it to pass, I, I would imagine it could jumpstart a conversation about real tax reform, because what we need, of course, is not just sort of one new tax, but a complete overhaul of our tax code, right? Um, and, and not just sort of uh, taxes, but a new way of thinking about taxes so that we think about, you know, taxing wealthier people and redistributing it to poor people. Um, at least that should be part of the conversation. But my guess, uh, if we are to believe Maya Angelou's uh, uh, oft-quoted dictum, uh, that when someone tells you who they are, believe them. My guess is that this is not going to pass and that uh, Biden uh, doesn't even particularly want it to pass, that this is theater, that this is um, him making good on his promise to Wall Street before the election, that nothing's going to change. And uh, he realizes that people, particularly his base, uh, is they're arguing for something new, something uh, um uh, that will improve their daily lives. And this is his sort of half-hearted attempt, cynical attempt to provide that. But I, I just don't see that Biden has much skin in the game and that he's serious about real tax reform. This would be a good first step. Mm. I just don't think that there's much appetite for it. But, you know, and particularly in, um, you know, it, and it's, 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 
it's uh, uh, it's too bad because I think it will cost the Democrats uh, in very real terms in the midterm elections if they don't pass something like this, if they don't start to provide very real reforms. Uh, I think it's going to cost the Democrats uh, very. Uh, uh, it's going to cost them a lot. In the, in the midterm elections and the, and the uh, 2024 presidential election. I think that's a good point. I think that's an interesting way of considering this. I mean, yeah, we do need to really reconsider the way people are taxed in this country. And, you know, people have been saying this for a long time, like taxing income is not when wealthy people don't need incomes. We have to really reconsider what how, what taxes are supposed to do and, and how we should actually achieve those goals with them. Um but yeah, some some of these actions, like, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to form multiple questions into something coherent. One is, is this going to be something that it falls to uh, the likes of Joe Manchin uh, and, and Kristen Cinema or whoever to, to shoot down? Uh, and then two, you know, I don't know. Some of the things that Democrats do makes me wonder if they think there is something valuable in getting some credit for, I guess, at least recognizing what needs to change and, you know, putting forth these possibilities for beginning that change uh, and then, you know, being thwarted, right? Like setting themselves up to have, oh, no, here's what we really tried, but we were thwarted on immigration, on taxation, on the child uh, um, uh, tax credit extension and the like. And I just wonder if they if they think that that will somehow be politically better for them than not doing anything at all. Attempting to do something and being ineffective, I guess, is the new strategy rather than just completely ignoring what your traditional base wants. And I just don't know that I just don't know that being ineffective uh, is better than being um, in- insensitive. Yeah, I, I, I think there's no doubt that our all politics in the United States today is performative. Um, uh, as compared to what we saw in the, I guess we didn't see it, none of us were alive then, but what what we experienced uh, in the United States in the 30s and 40s where it was transformative, right? The New Deal really transformed people's lives. We're not doing anything of the the sort these days. And I, 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 I think it's a miscalculation by the Democrats. I think, you know, one of the our biggest mistakes is that we give them too much credit. We think that they have a long game. They don't. They're trying to keep the genie in the bottle. But the thing is, it's already escaped. You can't put it back. Uh, And the only question is sort of when people will wake up uh, and understand what's been done to them basically for the last 40 years, right? Where where we've seen, you know, there's a lot of definitions for neoliberalism. The best that I've ever heard is that under neoliberalism, the state becomes a guarantor of corporate profit. If you understand, if you understand the state providing that service to the very rich, uh, you'll you'll understand that um, uh, there will be outrage. It will pour into the streets and uh, there will be changes, good or bad. I don't think the Democrats have ever really sort of had a a reckoning uh, with that. The Republicans don't care, of course. It's just not their um, it's not a, a dilemma they have to, to deal with, really, in any direct sense. But the Democrats have never really had a, 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 um, an understanding of this, right? They, I think they just think they can keep this thing at bay indefinitely. And they can't. You know, inflation is really um, the Achilles heel. And they can't, you know, when people start paying more to eat, um, you know, food, and, and I hate to say this, I hate to quote Tucker Carlson, but he was right. He said this in a recent commentary, you know, 
food and the cost of food has caused many a riot just in the last decade. Yeah. Uh, it really had a lot to do with the Arab Spring. And so I think uh, that's what we're faced with. And I don't think the Democrats have really, I think some of them do. I think some of them do, but I think uh, uh, most of them do not understand uh, what's likely to happen if they don't sort of actually produce some real changes in American public life. Yeah, I just don't think you get that much credit for trying. Not for people who you are actually letting, for people who are going to be completely materially unaffected by anything you do, I think you do get that credit. Uh, but not for anybody who's, you know, who's, uh, whose well-being hangs in the balance. Yeah, exactly. And that is such a useful lens. It's <laughs> just such a useful uh, definition of neoliberalism. I love it. Um, well, you know, talking about inflation, uh, Yahoo is warning today about a possible harbinger of, of a recession, which is a, uh, an inverted yield curve for the first time since 2006. I, I could not bring myself to learn what that means today. So John, I've, I want you to please tell us what this inverted curve means, why we last saw it in 2006 and, and what it could be a sign of. I mean, I, a recession is my understanding. Yeah, well, you re, you remind me of why I never went to get that master's in economics. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, I, <laughs> I, I know this. I know that the inverted yield, yield curve means that the short term treasury notes pay more than the longer term. Oh, okay, uh, I get uh, it. Uh, bonds are expected to pay. And so what that means is that uh, it basically means inflation is looming, right, and threatening to grow, and that there's some uncertainty about uh, the economy going forward. So I know that much, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I don't find it particularly useful myself. Um, although I think, it, I think it's true. There is some uh, predictive... Uh, power in it, right? I do think that it probably does signal trouble ahead, but I think there are a lot of, a lot more indicators that are probably better uh, for doing that. So yeah, I think what we're seeing is that there's, you know, inflation has returned. We're not likely to be able to um, get a whole, get a handle on inflation in the, in the, in the, in the very near future. And um, uh, wealthy people will likely be a little bit less wealthy in the very near future. It doesn't really tell you much about what's going to happen to those of us who aren't wealthy. Um, but I think we all sort of understand that the future is not bright. Um, we can take off our shades. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's OK. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to ask is, you know, we, we had been watching for weeks for the Federal Reserve to enact uh, the first of this planned series of interest rate hikes. And now I'm wondering if we are, you know, if we are starting to see effects of those rate hikes. The only thing I have seen, you know, because I was sort of idly looking at at houses and mortgages. And of course, mortgage rates just immediately uh, started climbing. Uh, but I'm wondering if you're starting to see any any of those uh, ripples coming out from that quarter percentage point increase. I, I haven't. I haven't really been looking. And I wouldn't expect that we would really see any dramatic differences uh, uh, until maybe later in the year as the interest rates continue to rise, if, if indeed they're going to continue to to raise the interest rates. I suspect that they did it this way in this sort of incremental fashion to sort of like, uh, you know, put their toe in the water, see how the economy responds. And then if, they, if things go well, they'll continue to raise them at this sort of incremental pace uh, until it reaches, I think they say, what, 2.8%, uh, which is a lot. And I, I think at that point, we would see some very real um, drying up of the financial economy. Uh, and that would be... Um, well, that would be bad. Let me just understate it that way. That would mm -hmm. be very bad. But I wouldn't expect that we see it any time uh, before the summer is over. I wouldn't expect, I, you know, I could be wrong about that again. I never got that economics 
degree that I <laughs> had long wanted as a young man. <laughs> the other thing, of course, that is happening in the much more near term um, is the, you know, we are seeing the results of the failure of the this government to approve more COVID funding. Right. So the the federal fund to reimburse doctors for covid testing seems to be the first thing that has run dry. And companies are now telling people who don't have insurance that they cannot get covid tests for free. Um, Tests by a doctor, if you are uninsured, will now cost. I I have seen Quest Diagnostics is charging one hundred and twenty five bucks. I saw another place offering covid testing for eighty dollars. Um, that, you know, that's a pretty big range. And that is pretty expensive. And of course, you know, you can still get home tests. I got my second government batch in the in the mail the other day, much faster than the first batch came. But those tests are not as accurate. But also, it's, you know, they're still, uh, I mean, you can get that government batch, but then those tests, I think, are like $20 a pop. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty hard to get them if you don't have an address you know, which uh, a lot of people would need, right? It's just, it's, it's not necessarily as easy. And so this this does seem, seem um, John, like, like it is just the first in a series of dominoes that will result in more suffering for the people who were always the most vulnerable, right? And it is something of a fiasco that I think Democrats had good reason to pull COVID money from that uh, initial spending package. But the fact that they haven't uh, managed to put something else together, put some standalone funding together is, is uh, a shame. Yeah, I, I just, you know, I think there's just, I was listening to a uh, a debate or a forum, uh, a panel. Uh, I can't remember which station it was. It was a Chinese station, one that they have not managed to pull from the internet uh, or from YouTube. Uh, and I can't remember which station it was, but they were debating uh, the United States handling of the COVID crisis. And they were raising something which I hear a lot in foreign countries, but never here in the United States, which is this this idea. I first heard it uh, posed by Franz Fanon, the late Algerian uh, uh, theorist, uh, revolutionary. You know, do we do we think of the economy as a tool for man, or is man a tool for the economy? And that really speaks to our mishandling of COVID, where we've seen uh, a, a completely privatized economy and and its uh, requirements take precedence over public health, right? And that's why, you know, um, you know, any dollars for someone who's making minimum wage, it's just, it, it might as well be a million dollars, right? It's yeah. just completely unaffordable. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, um, w- what, what is the purpose of that, right? It means that someone is making money, but it means that a lot more people might be infected with uh, COVID. And so there's just not, um, the, the, the mishandling of the, of uh, the, the pandemic has just been catastrophic. And I, you know, combined with the economy, uh, and, and now, you know, we're seeing um, uh, 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 potential conflict in Europe between NATO and Russia. I don't think it will happen, but it's certainly on the table. Uh, and, and you know, we're seeing Chris Rock go wild at the Academy Awards and smack, I mean, uh, Will Smith go crazy at the Academy Awards and smack uh, uh, Chris Rock. What's this world coming to, right? And it seems <laughs> yeah. like people aren't, People aren't sort of they haven't sort of had that awakening yet. I, I wonder what it's going to take. But the COVID thing seems like a catastrophe that we just haven't sort of recognized. I mean, we're, we're closing in on a million people. Right. We've got five percent of the world's population and 20 percent of its deaths. I mean, do people still think the United States is the greatest country in the world? I mean, uh, that would seem to suggest that it's not if you've got 20 percent of the world's deaths and a uh, 
uh, a death rate that's higher than anywhere else in the world. I, I just don't, I, you know, it's, it's really hard to sort of get your arms around everything that's happening. And COVID seems so central to our, our, our malaise, right? Our discontent. And, you know, I understand there's another wave probably coming and there's no sort of plan to tackle that. While well, you see, as you said, uh, China is going to lock down Shanghai. That's going to affect the economy, certainly, right? Yeah. But but the Chinese understand, as they said in this panel debate I heard, they understand that, you know, if you don't have health, you don't have anything, right? Yeah. And the economy is going to really shut down if you've <laughs> yeah. got a million people dying, you yeah. know, or I guess in China would be a lot more than that. Well, I would jump in on the on the matter of uh, China. You know, you have an economy, as you say, you, you have a government whose sole purpose is not to guarantee corporate profits. Right. And so I think you do handle things differently. Right. If that's uh, you know, if, if your economy is not designed just to, to keep running by any means necessary to enrich a, 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 an increasingly small or increasingly small uh, diminishing number of people. Yeah, yeah, and, and if, I, if I can add this too, because yeah. I think it's important, right? And, and you know, it's true. I'm, I'm a 57 year old black man, uh, and so to to a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, right? But there is a component of our of of what's going on in the United States uh, that is the result of our marginalization of our most our, our, our most radical voices, right? Uh, you know, going back, of course, to the 60s, but but continuing to this day, so we don't have the people who could most help us identify solutions have been marginalized from this conversation, uh, banned really from this conversation. And, uh, it, you know, and that's to our detriment, right? That's really um, part of the reason we, we're not having conversations about, well, wait a minute, what, what's the economy there for, right? Is it just to make a few people rich? Yeah. Or is it to benefit public health, public progress, public prosperity, right? And, and because we don't have these radical voices just saying, very simple thing, you know, and, and yes, you know, we've got we've got a few people. Richard Wolf is a great example of someone who's still sort of uh, carrying the torch for a radical left. But other than than Richard Wolf, I mean, we really don't have many voices who can speak out loud and be heard by a number of people. And they matter because. You know, if you grow up in the United States and you imbibe our sort of uh, uh, our sort of truths about what the economy is and, and what politics are, it simply does not occur to you that this is not the way things have to be, right? I mean, I was having a discussion with a friend of mine who's a lovely, you know, a lovely, well-educated and intelligent woman uh, doing something like a sort of shrug, like, oh, well, I mean, I guess you just can't go on, you know, you, you have to go back and start making money at some points or we can't, you know, it was something like, oh, I guess we, well, you just have to do this. And I said, you, you actually don't, right? You don't. Uh, we could, you know, it would be easy enough for, for the government to continue funding X or Y or Z. It would be, it's just like none of this stuff has to be. Uh, but if you don't have those voices telling people, you know, that there is an, another that other ways are possible, right, that that economic law is not the same as natural law, uh, people really will not realize it and would just go, oh, well, I guess I guess I have to go maybe die at, at my uh, job where I make twelve dollars an hour because there simply is no there's no one to be mad at because there is no other way. Yeah, I, I, you know, I tell the story a lot about when I first moved uh, overseas for the Washington Post in 1999, and I went to South Africa. And I, I, I say, you know, I, I have, uh, I have one particular genius, and only one, right? And that is, I understand when someone is smarter than me, and I shut up, right? That's the one thing I do really, really well. And so, really, for four years in South Africa, and then for almost two 
in Argentina, I was really kind of mute, right? I just listened because people tell me things. And I wasn't ignorant about these issues, right, uh, uh, back then. But I wasn't, I wasn't as well-versed in them as the rest of the world was, right? And so you learn so much when you sort of understand how the rest of the world, the conversation that's going on in the rest of the world is very different than the one going on in the United States. Even in Canada, which is not much better, but it is better than the United States, there's a broader, fuller conversation about the role that the state should play in our economics and in our uh, in the lives of, of uh, uh, common people. And so, yeah, it's just not, um, it's just, it's a failure of our imagination. That's really what we're experiencing here in the United States, and a failure of our imagination. Yeah, and I think it isn't coincidence that, you know, that on every topic, the most radical uh, voices are, are sidelined, right? It's not only economic voices, it's foreign policy, it's, it's uh, race, it's all of that. Uh, John, we could always have a longer conversation with you, but we have run out of time. It's always great to talk to you, though. That was author and journalist John Jeter. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you. We'll talk to you again soon. In the meantime, you're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking, of course, about Ukraine. And there's a lot to talk about. I mean, we have Joe Biden once again uh, changing U.S. policy on the fly, causing the White House to have to backtrack. But maybe he is doing us all a favor. Uh, by saying what everyone is thinking but not supposed to be saying. Uh, We have peace talks starting in Turkey. Uh, We have videos uh, uh, alleging uh, the terrible mistreatment of POWs. Uh, There's there's a ton to get into and uh, getting into all of it. With us is Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's managing editor of Covert Action magazine and the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy. Thanks for joining us again, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start off with the the treatment of these videos that have been circulating on social media for, I mean, for days at least now, maybe a, a week, uh, especially one in particular, uh, alleging to show Russian POWs being brutalized by Ukrainian soldiers, right? They, being shot in the legs while their hands are tied, uh, being beaten while they are hooded and restrained. I mean, they're terrible videos and they have been floating around for a little while now. Uh, And finally, today, you had Ukrainian presidential advisor uh, Alexei Arostovich promising a serious investigation and consequences if the videos are found to be real. The Ukrainian defense ministry, meanwhile, is saying uh, these are Russian fakes. And again, you know, John and I say this every time a new video purporting something or other comes up, that we cannot confirm whether any of these videos are real. But The way this war is being covered in the United States is, again, to present every alleged incident of violence by one side only. And when it's the other side, you see nothing until perhaps you get you get a denial. And so, again, for that reason alone, not because I have any uh, particular insight into what's real and what's not real on social media. But for that reason alone, I think you could say, look, this is this is much more like propaganda than war coverage. 
Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, you can go back, you know, th this war really started eight years ago, and there was virtual media blockout. Uh, I mean, I spent some time in Russia, and they were showing uh, documentary films where they had Ukrainian soldiers, you know, admitting uh, that they had carried out torture uh, during that dirty war ongoing for eight years. So it's not too surprising yet to see that they'd be carrying out torture or, or atrocities against POW now. They've been doing it for years. Russia has been alleging that, and that there's strong evidence that they've done that quite consistently in the past. But you know, the U.S. media never reported, never even reported on that war at all. Uh, it's a war that never took place, and let alone that the U.S. was supporting, uh, you know, Ukrainian army that would commit these kinds of atrocities. And yeah, the the American public uh, has been misled to believe that this is a black and white uh, struggle, uh, when really the U.S. is allied with a, an army that has again committed uh, systemic war crimes and atrocities over uh, an eight-year period. Yeah, and again, I, I, you know, I, I suspect if if we were being honest and realistic, it'd be hard to find a war where there weren't, ter you know what I mean? It's hard to find a war that isn't dirty, right? Uh, but it's just that you know, when you see this pattern over and over, you just have to conclude it's impossible to get an, an actual picture of this conflict from the entities that have been charged with doing that for the for the English speaking population in the United States. And I would just add that, I mean, there, there are neo-Nazi regiments uh, like the Azov Battalion uh, that the U.S. You know, is either directly or indirectly supporting. So it wouldn't be that surprising that they are committing these uh, atrocities when they are neo-Nazis uh, in the Ukrainian army that we know about. And they've been dominant in Mariupol. Uh, and the footage has even shown that it's a lot of the footage comes from Azov Battalion. Mm -hmm. Yes. The other thing I wanted to get your thoughts on before we get to uh, Joe Biden's uh, policy reversals is uh, it's almost comic, right? This uh, Daily Mail story, I think it broke on Friday afternoon, Friday evening, about uh, Hunter Biden being linked to funding for high-level biological research in Ukraine, right? There's research uh, on dangerous materials that so much hay is being made of uh, in all quarters lately. To me, you know, I mean, one, it is just like, of course, of course, Hunter Biden's name was going to come up in this. Like, is it is it radioactive? Oh, cool. Hunter Biden's got something about it on his laptop. Uh, it looks like evidence that if there was big government spending happening in Ukraine, going to Ukraine, Hunter Biden wanted a piece of it. Right. That is that is sort of what it looks like to me and not necessarily his involvement being any more similar than that. But I wanted to get your your thoughts on this, Jeremy. Sure. Yeah. And I would recommend to viewers, I just finished reading the book Laptop from Hell by Miranda mm -hmm. Devine, uh, which is a you know based on her uh, review of everything that was in that laptop. And it's a very damning portrait of Hunter and Joe Biden and how Hunter kind of served as, as Joe's bag man in many ways uh, for many years. And with regard to this bio lab, I think it was through Rosemont, because Biden, Hunter Biden was uh, the head of Rosemont Seneca, which was a financial uh, firm, uh, Wall Street, I guess, um, banking firm. And they you know, provided financing for a company called Metabiota. And that was one of the companies uh, that was invested and involved with these biolabs in conjunction with another company called Black and Veach. And there actually are documents, you know, they, they claim that this was all Russian misinformation, but the Pentagon actually, there are documents that are accessible on the internet and that have been published pointing to these Pentagon contracts for biolabs 
uh, in Ukraine. And yeah, the main company again was Black and Veatch, but there's also uh, evidence emerged about this company Meadow Biota, which is financed through Rosemont Seneca, which is the company Hunter Biden, as well as I think John Kerry's stepson were the CEOs of that financial house. So that's where the connection lies. And uh, yeah, again, Hunter had been involved in some very, very shady things in Ukraine, uh, including Burisma, uh, which, you know, the energy company, which may have been used as a front because uh, Burisma was ultimately under the control of Ihor Kolomoisky, a warlord who funded Zelensky and also funded some of these right wing neo Nazi militias that were fighting the dirty war in eastern Ukraine starting in 2014. So, Hunter is really enmeshed in the Biden family in this war in Ukraine. And don't forget, Joe Biden was a, a super hawk on Ukraine who pushed early on in the Obama administration for the provision of Javelin missiles to the Ukrainian army and has been a constant champion of uh, support for the Ukrainian government since the Maidan coup. Yeah, I mean, the, Hunter's name popping up in this. And as you say, uh, uh, John Kerry's uh, son-in-law, was it popping up? It just does show like these families who are in power. If there's it's if there's big money going around, if you're talking about five hundred thousand dollar investments here and there, uh, you know, there will be family members of the people who run our governments who are involved in it, who are trying to get a, a piece of it. Right. Like I have I have seen how poorer and less developed countries are are eager to uh, demonstrate that they are entrusted with responsibility, right? By by holding labs like this, by doing research. I remember when I was in Kazakhstan, they were, you know, they were very pleased and, and really coveted uh, being entrusted with the IAEA's Bank of Low Enriched Uranium, right? It is sort of a way to, you know, get some international recognition. Uh, it, it was interesting that this lab was presented as a way to sort of break with Russia. But I think that is also kind of part of this part of this game. The other thing that I think is important here is I don't think Americans understand how much our Department of Defense is funding uh, science and technology. I mean, maybe listeners to the show understand because we, we've talked about it with um you know, education experts in the United States talking about how the fact that it is it is often uh, eventually, directly or indirectly, the Department of Defense funding scientific and technological research at American universities that shapes the direction this research takes. And so that to me is another sort of um, underlying aspect of this story. Uh, that I that I think is worth noting. I also I didn't I haven't had a chance to mention this, but a friend of mine had an had an interesting uh, take on the uh, the sort of biolabs and their utility for Russia, uh, which is just I don't think I was able to mention this before. And this is not my take. Right. So I think but I do think it's interesting. But he's saying uh, it's a little it's a little bit of like tit for tat, like the Iraq WMDs. Right. Now it's the U.S.'s turn to try to prove a negative. Right. right. And so the fact that it does just get, you know, of course, Hunter Biden's name is in there. Of course, Carrie's family is in there. It gets shadier and shadier. And it's just like, all right. Yeah. Tell me you weren't doing something. Prove you weren't doing something nefarious, even though they probably probably know that they weren't. Go ahead, Jeremy. Uh, well, yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and I think also, I mean, the other thing is we don't know what they're manufacturing in these labs. It could be related to, you know, biological warfare. I mean, they're, you know, I guess there would be conspiracy theory at this point about the COVID crisis uh, and that, you know, many believe that COVID may have been manufactured in lab that didn't spread from bats 
and that there were experiments going on, I mean, probably in the Wuhan lab and possibly here as well. We don't know for sure. We do know that the U.S. government and CIA has run germ warfare pro uh, programs for many years, going back to the early years of the Cold War, and that they manufactured anthrax uh, and, and you know diseases that could be spread on the battlefield. So, uh, and, and some of the stuff is really on the level like Nazi Germany, and actually they had even recruited Nazi scientists after World War II to help uh, set up these germ warfare projects. So, if that was going on in Ukraine, that would be even more disturbing mm -hmm. than what we're already describing—the corrupt political corruption behind it. I also, and it's funny now after a weekend, like you'd think that Joe Biden basically calling for regime change in Russia would be would be the top news on Russia uh, on Monday, but yeah. it's taken us all this time to get here. But of course, let's talk about uh, the excitement that he caused. We mentioned this on the show on Friday, mm -hmm. first, you know, telling a bunch of U.S. soldiers in Poland that they were going to see Ukraine firsthand. Uh, Which and had then to panic them. he concluded a speech about the war again in Poland with an off the cuff. Uh, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power, talking about Vladimir Putin and quite appropriately causing people to wonder what the U.S. endgame in Russia and Ukraine is. I mean, wonder if it hadn't been clear already, right? Uh, the White House immediately said, no, 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 he wasn't talking about regime change in Russia. He was talking about bullying neighboring countries. Um, but you also had a, a report in Bloomberg from uh, also over the weekend uh, that to be clear, it cites a secondhand account, right? Now, Ferguson says, uh, someone told me that they overheard a senior official say uh, the only end game in Russia is the end of the Putin regime for the United States. And so the question really is, is Joe Biden doing us a favor by saying out loud, you know, what seems pretty clear? I think so. Yeah. I mean, he did that with Syria and, you know, he, he doesn't know how to keep his mouth shut. Uh, and he's you know very gap prone, which I guess is good for us because... We have a clear understanding, uh, although, as we say, it was probably obvious before, but we have the direct words about it, just like his claim that they weren't really, you know, they were al-Qaeda operatives and the, you know, moderate rebels in Syria. And now we hear him say the goal is regime change. And I think, yeah, again, that was the goal all along to induce, you know, they provoked Russia over an eight-year period by supporting the coup of 2014, by uh, pushing for NATO expansion, uh, by providing all this weaponry to Ukraine and assaulted eastern Ukraine, by blocking negotiations, staging provocations. So uh, I think they were planning, just like in Afghanistan, you know, in the uh, 70s, late 70s, early 80s, Brzezinski admitted the strategy had been to induce a Soviet invasion, you know, to bleed the Soviet empire in Afghanistan, that he was proud of it. And it was the same same strategy now. And, you know, they've been ratcheting up the sanctions, uh, I think is key to the goal of trying to isolate Russia and undermine its economy. And that will sow disaffection uh, among the Russian people. But it doesn't seem to be working because if you follow public opinion polls, Putin's popularity has actually increased. Though there's some, you know, anti-war people um, and some were arrested, but uh, Putin's popularity rating, I saw some polls, how reliable is hard to say, but the polls indicate his popularity may have actually gone up. Uh, uh, so I, I don't know if this strategy ultimately is working, although yeah, Ukraine does look like uh, you know, it will be a long, drawn-out war, and they're pouring in all this weaponry uh, that will you know, prolong the war. Uh, and you know, I don't think the U.S. is pushing particularly hard on, on the negotiations for a settlement. 
that could you know easily I think happen. But uh, with all the weaponry, that may give more confidence to Ukraine that they can fight the Russians to a standstill, and the U.S. may be trying to block a settlement in line with their goal of bleeding the Russians in Ukraine like they did in Afghanistan in the 80s. Can I talk to you about uh, a little more about that weaponry and what you would interpret from it? Because, yeah, I mean, Zelensky has, uh, again, been asking for planes, asking for tanks, asking for, you know, missiles. S- yeah, serious equipment. Yep. And so far, no one has come through with any of that. And so even looking at, I mean, again, I don't want to to discount uh, how difficult it would be to get those weapons into Ukraine's hands if you didn't want to uh, trigger a wider conflict, right? I mean, I think... I, I think that it is also possible that, yeah, the people don't want to do that because they don't want to trigger a wider war. But as it is, you know, what kind of conflict would the weapons that we have been supplying Ukraine support? It doesn't seem like what we are giving them is anything that can bring this conflict to a swift and decisive end. Yeah, well, it wouldn't bring it to an end, and that may be the point. If they want a long war, uh, it could. I mean, the, the Javelin anti-tank missiles, they claim that they shot down uh, uh, 50 tanks so far, and that, that was a report I read maybe a week or two ago. So by now, the number may be higher, uh, although maybe they were just bragging. I, I don't know. But uh, then there's these, um, you know, the same the Stinger missiles, like they provide in Afghanistan, can shoot down, you know, Russian aircraft uh, so these are pretty sophisticated weaponry, and, and for years the U.S. was providing drones. You know, they claim they're providing non-lethal equipment, but I, th- I believe they're actually providing drones for many years, even going back to the o- Obama administration. So, uh, I mean, overall, that you know, Ukraine is not is a very overall a very poor country. Uh, you know, by European standards, certainly. Uh, so, I mean, these weapons have helped bolster the Ukrainian military, and it is, you know, contributing uh, to some of the difficulty the Russians may be facing. And if they can get more weaponry in, it would, you know, uh, you know, bog the Russians down potentially further. Uh, the other thing, of course, that's happening is that Russia, Russia and Ukraine are meeting today. And for the next two days. And so I wanted to get your thoughts, Jeremy, on on the situation on the ground, what it looks like to you and what you hope to see from these talks. I also want to throw in uh, a lot of Western outlets today. I'm thinking primarily of NPR uh, have been talking about Russia's change of strategy. Right. And the presentation is that I guess Russia was trying to take over all of Ukraine and now they have changed their strategy to wanting to just sort of encircle the east. I I don't. But we don't know that. Well, yeah, that's the thing. That's been an an accusation. I'll I'll use mm -hmm. the word accusation made by the Western media. Yeah. We've never there's never been any press conference, let's say, where Vladimir Putin said, let me lay out our military strategy for you. Right. This is just, you know, the Washington Post, the New York Times saying, oh, they're just going to take part of uh, Ukraine. No, they're going to take the whole of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. No, they've changed strategies and they're only going to take part of Ukraine. And I mean, for most most of the people we have talked to have been, you know, suggesting this from the start. Oh, it looks like they're sort of looks like they're encircling this east. Oh, that's what they're. So it it seems I don't know that I I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it's interesting that these outlets are reporting a change that I think some people would say doesn't look like much of a change at all. So I wanted to also ask you about that, Jeremy. 
Yeah, well, uh, as you guys are pointing out, I think the believe you know the believability of these networks uh, should be you know as plummeted for many people, uh, including as John was saying, and many people in the public because they've reported things so many times that aren't true. Um, and I mean, in this kind, you know, first we were hearing how you know Vladimir Putin is crazy and insane. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're you know still pushing that line, but no, it's been weeks since I heard he had stomach cancer or Parkinson's and was in hiding. Yeah, and I mean, you know, they didn't give the whole backstory on the war that would explain his actions, and and that doesn't account for yeah, if his popularity rating is indeed increased, uh, that would kind of undercut that claim. Uh, so, um, you know, among other things, uh, so, you know, and we didn't hear in the weeks before all of a sudden he has a you know mental illness or something. And I mean, everything, you know, everything they're saying, uh, is hard to believe. You know, they were reporting like with the Mariupol theater, it was immediately reported that Russian Russia had destroyed the theater. Uh, but then, you know, eyewitness accounts came out and said it was the, you know, the Azov battalion had controlled that theater. And ultimately, they were the ones uh, uh, to do it. Uh, and it appears that, that that there is evidence to confirm that. And you know, other things. I mean, Russia has been accused, you know, from day one of so many things. And yes, yeah, some may be true, but uh, you know, a lot of the things are unproven, or in some cases, they've even backtracked. And I think there's this narrative they want to present. Uh, that you know Ukraine is standing up, and you know uh, that they're inflicting you know defeats on the Russians, and that the Russians are ultimately going to have to backtrack. So I think that's why they're pushing this narrative about oh now there's a change in strategy. You know they expect expect the lightning blitzkrieg and to take over Ukraine in a week, but I don't know if that was Russia's expectation. I mean I, I think uh, I'm sure they had a realistic you know military plan. This was not going to just take one week, uh, and that their you know Ukraine was more favorable. You know the the eastern parts of Ukraine were more favorable to the Russians, and also um, I, I mean I think it's clear that they had a strategy. You know they seem to be encircling some of the cities. And like Kiev, and rather than you know leveling the city, I think they're they're going about in a very slow, um, methodical way, and that may have been the strategy all along. So there may be no change at all. Uh, and initially, I mean, they said their goal was demilitarization and, and denazification, and that may be the strategy they're pursuing. I don't know if they're pursuing regime change. Uh, it's not clear. Uh, I think they want they want to demilitarize Ukraine so the Ukraine cannot attack. The eastern provinces any longer, and that those provinces are secured. And in any negotiation, they would want to, you know, secure either the incorporation into Russia or, or autonomy of the uh, Luhansk and, and Donetsk province. And you know, they may want to secure certain territory to to protect the area around Crimea. You know, some are talking about partition. Uh, p- perhaps that is an ultimate strategy. Uh, to partition the country and, and that Russia would incorporate certain regions, uh, which is a possibility. I, I don't know exactly the Jeremy, strategy they're pursuing. Yeah, it's hard to see, as you guys tell. We can't, it's hard to read from, from this side. Yeah, we're going to have to leave it there. And we, of course, will come back and see if there are any results from these talks uh, for the next two days between Ukraine and Russia. That was Jeremy Kuzmarov, managing editor of Covert Action magazine. You've been listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back.
Local Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. The Israeli government over the weekend hosted a security summit with the foreign ministers of the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, Jordan, Egypt, and the United States in the Negev Desert. The primary topic of conversation was Iran and its nuclear program. Secretary of State Tony Blinken said that the U.S. sought to re-enter the JCPOA, but the Israelis, and the Arabs for that matter, said that they would not waver on their commitment that Iran should never possess nuclear weapons. Also in Israel over the weekend, two people were killed when gunmen opened fire in a town about 31 miles north of Tel Aviv. ISIS took responsibility. In other developments over the weekend, New York Mayor Eric Adams released a video of a mother and child being held at gunpoint. Adams is proposing a new anti-gun and anti-gang squad in the New York City Police Department. This coincides with President Biden's plan to increase federal funding for police departments around the country. And speaking of Biden, he made a major gaffe on Friday when he uttered nine simple words. We talked about it a little bit in the last hour. He said, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power, referring to President Putin. The White House immediately walked the statement back, saying that U.S. policy is not to seek regime change in Russia. Secretary of State Blinken also said that the president misspoke. We're going to talk about all that and more with Ted Rawl, who joins us from New York. Ted's an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is The Stringer, and he's co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. You can find more of his work at www.rall.com. Welcome back, Ted. Thanks, John. Good to have you, Ted. Let's begin with this summit in Israel. Uh, There was very little in the way of advance notice about this summit, but it was a pretty big deal. It's in all the papers today. It was at a very high level. The media reporting that the topic of conversation was Iran, and the Israelis were seeking assurances about the Iranian nuclear program. That's all fine, but did that necessitate a foreign ministerial summit? Why did they have this meeting in the first place? You know, you got me, John. <laughs> it, uh, it, it, it's, it's really mysterious. Um, you know, that caught me by surprise, as it did, uh, I think, m- many other people. And, um, you know, it just seems to me that this is kind of a solution chasing a problem. Uh, yeah. you know, Iran's been very clear that um, they don't want to develop nuclear weapons. Uh, they want to have allow inspections and and, and be open. Um, they, I think, all their actions have been extremely credible from ever since the revolution. You know, I mean, people forget uh, that 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 their uh, their membership in the uh, the nuclear nonproliferation treaty uh, dates back to the Shah's regime and. The Islamic revolutionaries could have just said, well, you know, that's that's not we're not going to keep that. But they decided to adhere to that. And there's really never been any credible evidence that Iran really wants to uh, build, uh, you know, wants a want a nuclear weapons program as opposed to just a nuclear power program. Right. Uh, And so, you know, there's just been a lot of heated rhetoric here and it's all based on rank speculation. And if the intelligence community knows anything different. They haven't shared it with the media. Correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I seem to remember the CIA producing a national intelligence estimate, I think at the end of the Bush administration, in which they concluded that there was no evidence, at least no evidence available to them, that the Iranians were seeking a nuclear weapon, that it really was nuclear power. Isn't that right? 
Yeah, that's that's how I remember it too, John. I'll, I'd have to do a deep dive into this, but that's definitely how I remember it. I mean, all these years, there's just all this. It's a lot of empty speculation, but there's just never there's never any there there. Uh, you know, not to mention, quite frankly, uh, you know, Iran is a far richer and more modern uh, country technologically than North Korea. North Korea got there. If Iran wanted to get there, they would have gotten there by now. Oh, I think that's right. I think they would have gotten there by now. You know, this is all happening at the same time that that we're supposed to be at the tail end of negotiations over the JCPOA, over the U.S. Uh, uh, rejoining the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. And we heard that that a decision was just about ready to be made. And then the Russians threw a wrench into it by saying that um, they shouldn't be punished in their trade with Iran by international sanctions and that that's what has put the brakes on the U.S. reentering the JCPOA. Is that right? Uh, can you give us an update? Uh, you know, that, that's, that, that is, again, there's no... Uh, you know, that may be true, um, but it seems very it's very esoteric at this point. Yeah. I have to admit, I, I I don't get it. And it also seems like just sort of like almost strange to be even having uh, that discussion on such a micro level, considering the fact, you know, as you mentioned in the opener that, you know, President Biden is, appears to be wanting to gas us into nuclear annihilation. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, about the ministers meeting in Israel and talking about Ukraine as well. Both Egypt and Morocco said after the meeting that the war in Ukraine was causing food shortages uh, in their countries because they buy both Ukrainian and Russian wheat. And the U.S. can't make up that shortfall. Before this turns into something bad, and, you know, the Egyptians every few years, they have bread riots there. I was actually in Egypt once during a bread riot, and it was because the price of bread, of a, a loaf of bread, went from a nickel to a dime. A hundred percent increase, but, you know, a nickel to a dime. And it just gives you an idea of how poor people are. And so when there's a shortage of wheat and that causes the price of bread to go up, you know, this can be a serious political problem. So what what can be done to relieve this this economic pressure on poor countries that just have to have that cheap wheat coming from Ukraine and Russia? You know, I mean, it's so funny. The sanctions are supposed to be directed toward Russia, but we're the entire world is going to be suffering economically and from food shortages and uh, you know energy shortages and soaring prices as a result of this nonsense and. Obviously, the developing world and the poorest countries, particularly in the south, in the global south, are going to suffer the most, as usual. And um, you know, and basically, you sort of hear lines like in corporate media, you know, that well, you know, the Germany and France and the United States and the UK, you know, they they can probably absorb the pain. And I'm like, but we don't have to have any of this pain to begin with. I mean, this is this is a choice. Uh, we don't have to do this. We're engaging in this harsh sanctions regimen in a completely interconnected global economy and supply system. Yeah, you're going to, you know, knock out access to Ukraine and Russia, which combined provide a, a plurality of the world's grain supply. Yeah, what do you think is going to happen? You know, we don't have it before these sanctions. Uh, you know, we had widespread starvation and poverty all over the developing world. It's only going to get worse. It's really insane. 
Yeah, I, I have to agree. This is this is something that either uh, the the major players like the United States and and the UK and the EU either didn't plan out or plan for, or they just decided tough luck. Uh, everybody's going to have to take a little bit of hurt, and uh, this is the price we pay to cripple the Russian economy. At least that's the way it seems to me. That's how I read it too. I wanted to ask you about this attack north of Tel Aviv that was claimed by by ISIS. You know, when I first read the headline, I thought, oh, my God, ISIS is now active in Israel. This is a game changer. And then when I read the article, it was two gunmen, both of whom were local Palestinians. They were local to the village right outside of where this thing took place. They shot two random pedestrians and killed them before the police opened fire and killed the gunman. The Israeli media only mentioned in passing um, that, uh, that ISIS had claimed responsibility. And even in the Israeli government, it was just kind of a big shoulder shrug. Uh, is this something the Israelis should be worried about, that ISIS is now claiming responsibility for attacks? Well, it's probably a legitimate claim, right? Because the thing about ISIS is it's like a... It's like a self-franchise, right? If you decide that you want to commit a uh, terrorist act and you want to you know, attribute it to ISIS, I guess you contact them through the dark web or whatever you do and, and you tell them you're going to do it and then they claim responsibility. So it's, you know, it's not like a you know, up-down planned, you know, like Al-Qaeda type organization at all. It's, it's freelance. Mm-hmm. And so sort of anybody can be in ISIS. Um, and uh, that's, so I mean... Do they have to worry? Yeah, it's always a worry when people kill, when people commit terrorist acts, uh, of course. I mean, Israel obviously has a, a long history of this sort of thing. I think by Israeli standards, this is just p- pretty much like another day, another another dollar. It's a, you know, it's a criminal act. It's a police thing. Uh, I, it's not like they have to worry that, it's not like ISIS has taken a swath of Israeli territory like they right. did in Syria and, and Iraq, right? So they don't really, I, if I were the, the Israelis, I wouldn't be losing a lot of sleep. But obviously, for the people who are affected, it's a big deal. You know, it's been my experience working with Israelis that, uh, with, with Israeli government officials, meaning that they are far more worried about um, organized as administrative units or groups among Palestinians. Uh, it didn't matter who was claiming responsibility for the attacks um, as much as it mattered that those claiming responsibility for the attacks eventually reported up the line to the PLO or to a, a part of the PLO. That's what really scared them. Um, and right now, of course, you know, they, they work with the PLO uh, in uh, in the West Bank and they're far more frightened of of Hamas and far more ready to pull the trigger on Hamas. And I'm wondering if they just see this either as a random attack, that there is not much, if any, of an ISIS presence in Israel, or this is subordinate to Hamas's operational wing. So that's a long way of saying, I I agree with you. I I think that they've probably concluded two people dead, that's a shame, but it's not the end of the world. Uh, they killed the gunmen. They'll make uh, examples of them in their home village, but they have bigger fish to fry in Hamas and uh, and Gaza. Oh, I mean, for sure. I mean, the situation, I mean, Gaza is a constant roiling 
powder keg, cauldron, whatever analogy you want to make. I mean, it's it is already always ready to blow. Um, and of course, you know, the way the Israelis, uh, you know, occupy it and, and have a complete blockade and enforce like massive unemployment and poverty there only makes it worse. So, yeah, that's their security concern. I mean, you know, which basically they've been addressing by, you know, walls. And, you know, unfortunately for the world and for the Palestinian cause, uh, it has been pretty effective at providing a much higher level of internal security within the non-occupied territories of Israel. But it's, you know, unfortunately, it's also kind of just creating this uh, sort of apartheid regime yeah. where and, and, and most Israelis, even liberal Israelis, don't really even see it except on television. Ukrainian uh, President Zelensky, by video over the weekend, addressed the Doha Forum. That's an annual gathering of oil and gas producers in the Qatari capital. And he asked them to increase gas production to make up for the supply loss from the war. The Qataris, it was kind of funny. You look at the Guttery press today, the English language press. They hemmed and hawed and uh, we're not sure. We, you know, we have to live in this neighborhood and people don't like to increase production. The Saudi foreign minister, Faisal bin Farhan al-Saud, member of the royal family, he just said, nope, not going to happen. Clearly, we're not doing it. He said that OPEC would stick with its production quotas and wouldn't increase anything, nothing. So my question to you then is, where is this oil and gas going to come from that would have been produced by the Russians uh, and then sent to Eastern Europe or, or rather Western Europe? Is, is Europe going to have a tough spring and summer with surging gas prices and heating oil prices, or are they going to be able to come up with with a, a, a solution to this? Are they going to be able to negotiate directly with the Qataris, for example? The Qataris have this thing called the, the North Dome, right? It's an ocean of natural gas that sits mostly uh, under Qatari waters in the Arabian Gulf. It, a little bit is, it, it sort of eclipses the, the northernmost uh, point of the Qatari Peninsula. They have enough gas, and I, I mean this like specifically, I'm not, I'm not overstating it. They have enough gas, if they continue to lift it at current rates, to last for more than 500 years. So it's not like there's a shortage of gas. They just haven't, they just haven't taken it out of the ground. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Peak oil was never a, a real thing. Um, and it was never going to be. Uh, and there's more sources coming online all the time. You know, I think, first of all, I remember I was thinking about Iraq during the 90s. Their oil got to market. You know, um, it, it, it was gray market oil. Oil finds a way to market. Uh, Russia will be able to uh, to uh, export their oil and I think the, the linchpin here is China and Central Asia. Um, if the alliance with uh, China holds up, there's a massive uh, pipeline operation that goes from the Caspian Sea to, uh, via Kazakhstan to, uh, to China, to Western China, to Xinjiang. And I, you know, I keep thinking, if the Chinese agree to take that oil off, the, off Russia's hands, um, you know, it's, it's going to get out. Um, I, it just sort of depends. A lot of it depends on the politics of, say, Turkmenistan, which has this major refinery operation. Uh, and you know, for example, Turkmenistan has, tech, it has declared itself as as um, uh, neutral. And so the question is, for example, would they ever 
agree to do a pipeline to via Iran to the Persian Gulf. I mean, that would take time, but it could be done. It's a project that's been on the books for years, but never happened due to U.S. sanctions against Iran. But, you know, it just sort of with that much oil sort of waiting to come out, it's going to come out. And, yeah, I think the short answer is in the meantime, prices are going to be sky high. It's going to be really hard on Eastern Europe. I mean, they, they'll run out. It's not even a question. Yeah, of, they'll run out. Yeah, it's they, you know, no amount of money. Money is no object. They just won't have it. And uh, as for the rest of us, we're all going to be paying more. You know, I was in D.C. over the weekend. Of course, I, I live in Virginia just across the uh, the river. And I was in the DuPont Circle neighborhood here uh, yesterday. And there's a gas station at the corner of 22nd and P Streets, northeast, northwest. And um, they had uh, diesel uh, going for five sixty nine nine. I was stunned by it. And just regular gas, four forty nine nine, and we're the ones that have the cheap gas. Yeah, you know, go to Europe and look at some of these prices. We're looking at eight, ten, twelve bucks a gallon already in Western Europe. And if this continues to drag on, it's going to be a long, tough summer for the Europeans. Come to New York. I would happily take that cheap gas you have in D.C. <laughs> it's a it's a dollar more here. Yeah, it's like two or three dollars more in Los Angeles. Crazy. Just crazy. Hey, I want to change, actually, uh, this conversation to New York. Uh, I have several different questions for you about Eric Adams, who I am really seriously coming to not like. I mean, I wasn't crazy about him in the first place, but this guy, um, Eric Adams, the new mayor, said on Friday, Ted, that he plans to clear homeless encampments in the next two weeks. That's the first thing. We'll get to his other statements. First of all, we all have homeless encampments, right? Every major American city has homeless encampments. Things have gotten worse for the for the homeless uh, since, since steadily, steadily you can, you worse. Can walk, like the proliferation in D.C. over the last it's six shocking. years has been, yeah. Every you know, every six months, there's a a, a tent or a couple of tents on a new place in the city That's where they right. hadn't been before, and it's awful. That's right. It is awful. It's gotten to the point where where they're actually installing like sandbags now to hold the the tents down uh, in inclement weather. Yeah. They're they're more permanent yeah. than they otherwise. And to be would clear, it is an awful situation that we yeah. put uh, these people in. Not as it is awful to witness or something. You know, it's just it's a, it's a sign of how badly things are going. Because it's not like the cops help them pack their stuff up. No, right? they're just they just throw and, everything away yeah. into a garbage truck. So my first question is, what does that mean that that Mayor Adams is going to clear homeless encampments? You can't just throw them out. They have to go somewhere. What does that mean? It's going to be, first of all, New York City doesn't really have, except in the outer boroughs, um, significant encampments in the way that many other cities like uh -huh. LA have or, uh, you know, or San Francisco. What we have, they're in the streets. You know, this is a place that doesn't have a lot of spare real estate. They're in the streets and they're in the subways. That's where they are. Yes. I mean, I was when I read this, the first thing I thought of is, you be you you know the biggest homeless encampment in the in the in the city is the Metropolitan Transit Authority. What are they going to do? Um, go through and kick them off? Because currently, literally every single car has one homeless person sleeping in it, um, and so it's just a rolling homeless shelter, and it's sad and it's squalid, um, and uh, you know there's kind of like. It just makes the whole thing untenable for everyone concerned. And obviously, it's not housing. These kinds of raids are just 
temporary stopgap measures. It's harassment. It doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't, you know, it's what we need is affordable housing. We need the special facilities that, uh, you know, take homeless people in, provide them with uh, all the care they need. Uh, in the cases of people who can be trained to go back to work, they need to get that kind of help. Other people obviously need mental health counseling. I mean, they need to be taken off the streets. They need to be given housing. They need to have expensive city services and social workers taking care of these people. That's what needs to happen. You know, we need to expropriate uh, abandoned buildings in this city. And uh, I would say, um, you know, know, people who owe back taxes, that's a good example of eminent domain. Um, There's a lot of warehoused apartments in the city that I think there should be a law that if a a building hasn't, a unit hasn't been occupied for, say, 24 months by anybody, then like it gets, you know, it gets seized by the city temporarily or permanently for housing for people who need it. Um, we have empty storefronts. We have office towers that are half empty now uh, due to COVID. Yeah, that's I mean, true. We have room. I mean, this, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a city with lots of little boxes. A lot of those boxes are empty. There's no reason for anybody to be sleeping outside. But there's a lack of political will and there's a lack of and there's a lack of desire to spend money on this problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing that Adams uh, said was that he's considering providing drones to the NYPD. These are these are not the little drones you get for twenty five dollars that you give to your kid so he can, you know, play with it until it crashes and breaks. These are hundred thousand dollar each professional law enforcement drones meant to surveil New Yorkers. So why, what do you need these drones for? You know, hovering, hovering over a crime scene is one thing. If it's going to help in the investigative process, maybe help you identify a suspect, whatever. But just flying drones around to surveil people as they go about their daily business, that's an entirely different issue. Why does he want these drones? What are they supposed to do? Well, it's part of the, you know, the security, the high-tech security state in this city is expanding and under New Yorkers' noses, and they're not really paying a lot of attention. A, a few years ago, um, uh, former Governor Cuomo installed on some of the major bridge and tunnel crossings uh, facial recognition software cameras. So when you get onto, for example, the RFK Jr. Bridge, the RFK Bridge uh, connecting Queens, the Bronx, and Manhattan, uh, you will see these flashing, uh, an array of flashing lights as you get on. And then uh, it takes your picture. And if it matches up that you have an outstanding warrant or whatever, there's a state trooper waiting on the other side of the bridge to pull you over. Um, and that's been in play for, you know, there's also license plate scanners. Uh, you know, obviously the city has tons of cameras uh, that are scanning people's faces. It's it's a serious, you know, issue. Um and uh, the FDNY, the fire department, just purchased these creepy black mirror robot dogs uh, that, um, you know, are obviously it's the next yeah. step is going to be for the cops to buy them uh, to chase down suspects. Um, crazy. It is it, it, it's crazy stuff. Uh, the only thing I hope is I really hope they buy some of these drones and that, you know, some uh, some of these uh, some people who have illegal guns but are a good shot just shoot them out of the air. 
because it's really it's insanely obnoxious and disgusting. <laughs> and that's actually happened in in other places where people are throwing beer bottles at the police drones. They're shooting the police drones. And there are police departments around the country that have had to make public announcements saying, please don't shoot the drones. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm on team. Sh- I'm on team drone shooter. Yeah, yeah same. I, I think that's a great thing. I'm with you. I'm with you. Definitely. Ted, Adams also complained about something he called, quote, a small group of leftists, unquote, uh, who are complaining about his plans for this new anti-gun and anti-gang units. He tweeted a video Sunday of a woman and her child being robbed at gunpoint in an apartment building to show that these units are needed. It was my understanding that the NYPD already had anti-gun and anti-gang units. What what exactly does he want to do? What's the goal here? Yeah, well, he, this is part of the rhetoric that he started during uh, his campaign last year, where he was saying uh, when he was a cop, uh, he put a lot of truck into the uh, into the anti into basically these detectives who would go and uh, and and find operations and that were importing illegal drugs from other cities and states because New York City has very strong anti-gun laws. So, right. uh, but obviously neighboring states don't, even neighboring counties don't. And so, uh, yeah, I'm very skeptical just because of the volume of the situation. I mean, you know, unless they're prepared to kick down every door in this city and search uh, the homes of 8 million people, uh, how are they, you know, there are so many, it's so easy to get guns uh, you can just drive them in through the tunnel. Uh, it's not going to be stopped that way. I mean, it's it's insanely easy. There's nothing to it. So um, this is it, it. Just it's like kind of ridiculous. It's like using a pea shooter to go after a fly or something. I mean, or a swarm of flies. It's not going to work. I mean, what really reduces crime in this city historically, as you know, Mayor Giuliani knew, uh, but wouldn't admit because he took credit for it is an expanding economy. Yeah. Um, you know, from 1993 to 2001, the, you know, the, uh, the, the New, York, New York's economy and the national economy was robust. That was Giuliani's mayoralty. You know, all the streets got paved, potholes got filled. It was a beautiful thing. Um, you know, right now, we're, we, we don't have that. We have a lot of bored, desperate young people out on the streets. And, you know, the devil makes work for idle hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, I remember um, Ed Koch uh, complaining about the state of Virginia being the source of so many of the guns that were making their way to New York City. And that lasted all the way up uh, through the Bloomberg administration. And so Virginia responded by passing legislation restricting the number of guns you could buy legally to one a day. We're only allowed to buy (laughs) one gun a day now. And uh, it's my understanding that that law is sunsetted. And so when it expires, we'll be able to buy our 50 guns a day again, if you want 50 guns a day. I mean, what's funny is I could actually see how that might work, right? For someone who's like running down to Virginia or wherever, you know, it's like, they, do they want to hang out a week to buy seven guns? Right. Uh, you know, that's, that, that, it's as silly as that sounds. It's not really worth uh, a run back on those seven, for those seven guns. Yep. So it's too bad that that law sunset. But look, the problem is, it's like, obviously you can't, you need a national gun control policy if you want to address this problem. Exactly uh, Doing right. it piecemeal by city, by state is never going to work. And, and you know, to, to, to even, it's almost like a waste of time to be thinking about that. 
I think you're you're right. Um, let's talk a little bit about housing prices. We've already spoken about homelessness, but housing prices after a short lull during COVID have taken off again in New York. The problem is that most New Yorkers can't afford to buy a place in New York or anywhere else for that matter, right? On 60 Minutes yesterday, an executive with a real estate developer said that millennials don't want to buy real estate because they like the freedom of, of renting. Mm-hmm. Let's listen to that clip. <laughs> we're going we're to listen to that clip, and I want to get your, uh, your reaction to it. Even Tricon's own presentation to investors says, quote, home ownership is increasingly out of reach. In our portfolio, the majority cannot buy a home, cannot afford to buy a home, or don't have the credit to buy the home. So, for example, they may have student debt, or they may have medical debt. And therefore, they can't qualify to get a mortgage. And if they want access to a single family home, which we think is incredibly important, this is the best way for them to obtain it. I think if you asked a lot of millennials, and that tends to be our primary resident, um, they would probably tell you that they don't necessarily desire to own a home or to Mm -hmm. own a car. They've grown up in the sharing economy. And for what's important to them is lifestyle. Right. And so if they can move into this, what we call a turnkey or hotel ready home and have a low maintenance lifestyle, that's very compelling for them. Very compelling. I just (laughs) you're you're a you're a young whippersnapping millennial. Uh, Michelle, I have so, do you I not have a want a home in a car? Here's the thing. I have a lot of thoughts about this, but I hadn't noticed the, <laughs> perhaps the most egregious thing. Uh, and then I can get into the rest. I hadn't noticed that he uses that that favorite word of people who want to tell you they're giving you something good when they're not, but access. So owning a home, owning a home, owning an appreciable asset that is going to help you build some measure of wealth. That's not what people have been doing in this country for decades and decades. What they want is access to a single family home. That is so offensive. It is. That is the most, uh, yeah, the, the, the nastiest, most slippery and vile aspect of this thing. Yeah. So, Ted, this is a clue. This is from 60 Minutes. And uh, Leslie Stahl is talking to this executive with, with Tricon Residential which is a multi-billion dollar company uh-huh. whose revenue increased last year by 67%. They own 30,000 wow. homes across the U.S., maybe the Sun Belt. They're trying to buy 800 houses a month. Wow. Um, and they're saying, oh, we're doing this so that we can provide access to homes for people who either don't want them because they like being freewheeling kiddos uh, or because they can't buy them for the totally, you know, uh, normal obstacles to homeownership, uh, student debt and, and medical debt. I mean, just everything. It's just it's a great intersection of a bunch of terrible things put in a really sort of calm and anodyne matter there, Ted. You know, um, Gen Xers were like millennials before millennials were millennials. And <laughs> they basically said the same kind of crap about us uh, as the average age of first home, home ownership rose from 24 to 26. And last time I checked, it was 32. And it's probably soon going to be 100. Uh, there there was just a um, this, this sort of same sort of thing like, well, you know, they don't want it. Um, it's it's uh, I mean, it's absurd. Yeah. I mean, there's it's very simple. The only way that a middle class American can accrue any wealth 
in any meaningful way. It's certainly not through your 1.2% interest savings account, right? Mm -hmm. It's got, it's you, it's buying a house and ideally in a neighborhood that's improving or gentrifying. And then maybe it goes up. Uh, You know, it worked for me. I, you know, it's very simple. People who are young have a very hard time accumulating that, um, you know, the down payment. And it's not even just a matter of the credit, but accruing that, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in one place, uh, you know, at a time when you, most people are lucky to even just be able to make their bills every month uh, is, is, is insanely hard. Now, I think there's some truth, by the way, parenthetically, to what they were saying about car ownership. In my experience, a, a sure. lot of young people sure. think that cars are the devil and uh, are, are destroying the planet and they don't want they don't want to have anything to do with it. They don't even want to drive, really. Like yeah. my son's like that. He's almost 18 next month. Uh, he's like, no, it's, it's disgusting. And I'm like, hey, you don't want to drive. Uh, I won't have to pay for your car insurance. Great. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you, you go save the planet. I love you. Um, but it's yeah, no, I mean, it's it, it is absurd. I mean, by the way, this is the sort of thing. This is the kind of capitalist activity that should really Congress should render illegal because it's so radically disruptive to the uh, to the economy. And, it you know, home ownership is a major structural part of the United States economy Absolutely. and the American dream. And, you know, we don't want to end up in a situation that like we have with Uber. I mean, Uber came in and destroyed undercut the yellow taxi business in major cities like New York and then destroyed it. And now ironically now that they've destroyed it they didn't they they weren't their rates were so low that too many of their drivers quit during the pandemic because there were not low rates and low riders mm-hmm. and now the ubers putting yellow cabs back in adding them to their service yeah. so in other words we are back where we started uber should never have been allowed to take off i mean it, this this kind of stuff it's i mean it's it's ir- it's irresponsible to the riding public um, to have untrained, non-professional drivers uh, using their own equipment rather than equipment that's licensed by a city, by you know, it, and drivers who are tested uh, to make sure they know the streets and so on. I mean, I was a taxi driver. I take this personally, yellow taxi driver. Um, but anyway, yeah, this is like the real estate version of Uber. The other thing I wanted to point out that John was sort of uh, alluding to, but didn't go too deeply into, which I appreciate. But we also have like millennial became a code word for a young young and frivolous person or a person who's whatever. It became code for a lot of things, but primarily it was young. But, you know, millennials are not children anymore. No, no, no. Right? Like, I think that there are a bunch of different generational definitions and divides. But one is, you know, people born between, what, 1980 and 2000. Those people, the oldest millennials are in their early 40s. No one is still, no one, that's not true. But, like, the idea that these are just kids who don't want, they're not ready for grown-up things anymore. It is absolute garbage. Uh And again, we've gotten away with it because we sort of allowed ourselves to take on this, you know, millennial, millennial are sort of permanently 22 years old and and wearing something goofy and, you know, wanting you to adopt whatever, you know, whatever all of the, uh, the stereotypes about them were. And it's just not the case anymore. And yet, you know, you have this guy again, you know, being able to say, oh, millennials don't want this. What they want is access to a building. Outrageous. Ridiculous. Ted, I'm a big fan of the uh, New York Times real estate section 
on uh, <laughs> on I, I right, read it okay. every week on Fridays. It's or on Saturdays, I guess it is. It's it's terrific, and um, they they always have this uh, this column once a week where they um, profile a person or a family, and they say they live in this crappy place. They want to buy a place, and they looked at these three. Which would you choose and which do you think they chose? And the the problem that these families have, and they're always middle class, um, you know, working class people or families in New York, is that uh, the prices are just outrageous. And it's not just the price of the real estate itself, but it's also uh, real estate taxes and condo fees or co-op fees. You know, it's not unusual for people to buy a, a condo that's smaller than what they need, but it's all that they can afford. And then they'll have $1,500, dollars $1,700 a month in condo fees that they pretty much can't afford either. Uh, lately, like over the last year or two, I've noticed that more and more of the time in these articles, people are moving out to Queens or Brooklyn because Manhattan is just priced out of range. People just can't afford uh, to to live there anymore. Um, are, are you seeing the same kind of thing? Are, are prices have prices gone to the point where people just can't do Manhattan anymore and they have to move out? Yeah, you know, I, I'm sort of a I, I can sort of uh, witness and attest to this myself. Um, I was living in Eastern Long Island in the Hamptons uh, until uh, 2020, and I moved back to the city in uh, August of 2020. And at that time, the apartment that I moved into. Uh, was, you know, the building was probably half empty. Uh, the wow. landlord was desperate. I got the rent for uh, about a third less than the previous tenant had been paying for it. And the landlord, uh, and I re- I only signed up for a one-year lease because I thought, oh, uh, you know, I might be gone in a year. Uh, but I renewed. And at that time, the landlord didn't even ask for a raise. I think they were just happy that I renewed. And then, uh, you know, now... I'm in this situation. My my lease is coming up in August, and there's a lot of you know. It's interesting. The building is still a quarter or a, a third wow. empty, but uh, everybody's talking about how the landlords are jacking up the rents um, when leases are coming up for renewal. And it's the most mystifying thing in the world. I mean, yes, the mask mandate is gone. Yes, the schools are open again, but the city is a dump. I mean, there's you know people are dodging bullets. Uh, the, the, the subways are a disaster. A lot of cultural institutions are shadows of what they used to be. You don't really need to be here, really. I mean, you know, you can work on your laptop uh, remotely in your office, you know, anywhere in the world. Anywhere. You don't have to be mm-hmm. paying these rents. So yeah. uh, it's missed. I mean, seriously, it's very rare that I see human be. you know, I see prices so completely non-reflective of reality. I mean, all the New Yorkers I know are like, well, this place sucks. I'm not sure I'm going to stay. And the landlords are like, yep, time to jack up the rent. It's really weird. Last question for you, Ted. The federal government agency here in Washington overseeing federal buildings on Friday approved the transfer of ownership of the Trump Hotel here in Washington to a Miami investment firm that includes the baseball star Alex Rodriguez. The price, this is what is has eyebrows raised. 
The price was $375 million, which is far more than the $200 million that the Trump family put into the place. And it surprised people because while Trump was president in those four years, he lost $70 million over the course of the four years. Nobody stayed in that hotel except for Trump uh, uh, supporters. Mm -hmm. Uh, a spokesman for the investment company said that the only change that they're going to make is to take take Trump's name off the marquee in the front of the building and to rename it the Waldorf Astoria, Washington. Is that it for Trump in Washington? Are he and Washington done with each other? Uh, I would say so. By the way, it's a beautiful hotel. Uh, Gorgeous. <laughs> it's to, the old post office yeah. building. Would love to stay there. Um, yeah, there's um, there's another hotel. I forget what it's called in Washington. That's a former amazing post office. Um, but it's a um, yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's a funny thing. I, I, I think the value of the hotel probably will just shoot up uh, with each with as they unscrew each letter of his name from the marquee, <laughs> uh, uh, more more people will be willing to stay there. Although I kept thinking, parenthetically, that there might be sort of a, you know, sort of a, a ironic cool factor to staying at a Trump hotel. Just, you know, at a certain point, it's so bad that it's good. Um, I, I guess we're not there yet. Um, I think maybe the, the results of the uh, next election will determine that. But yeah, I think, I think, I think uh, D.C., and Trump are done unless he yeah. comes back in a glorious return. Uh, first uh, president since Grover Cleveland yep. uh, to, to return after an interruption. It doesn't seem like it was, he had a he had a rally over the weekend, right? He had a rally on Sunday that didn't get a, a lot of attention except for reporting that it was the smallest, the smallest so far. Um, right. But we do have some Trump breaking news, Ted, if you would like to hear. Apparently, yes, this is do. from The New York Times that a federal judge wrote today that uh, Donald Trump and a lawyer who advised him on how to overturn the 2020 election most likely did commit felonies, including obstructing the work of Congress and conspiring to defraud the United States. Um, so this is about Trump and John Eastman, mm -hmm. I believe. And it came in an order for Eastman to uh, turn over more emails to the House committee that's investigating this. So I don't really know what this... This is a judge saying you have to turn over those emails, I guess, because I think it is more than likely that you did commit a crime. Yeah. The the reason why Trump is still generally OK on this issue is that this federal judge is handling only the civil suit. Mm -hmm. And so he he vocalized an opinion that Trump had committed felonies, but he doesn't have the authority to actually try Trump for felonies. Right. But he can order that more evidence be yes. produced by this fellow. Eastman. Exactly. Yeah. That it be turned over. Yeah. Okay, Ted, we're going to leave it there. We were joined by Ted Rawl. He was in uh, New York. Uh, he is an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author, and his latest book is called The Stringer. He's also the co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. And you can find more of his work at www.ral.com. Thanks for joining us, Ted. You're listening to Political Misfits. We're going to take a short break and come right back. Stay tuned. Political 
Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Michelle, I don't know if you recall, but about a month ago, maybe it was longer than a month ago, um, I told you that I was considering, just in the very early stages, considering writing a book on serial killers. Mm-hmm. Remember we had that conversation mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. serial killers? Well, I sent a bunch of letters out. And I, at first I got an email, or a, a letter rather, not an email, but a letter back from Tex Watson, one of okay. the members of the Manson family who killed uh, Sharon Tate and and the uh, LaBianca family. And um, and all he wanted to talk about was, was Jesus in this letter. And he asked me if I would help him spread the word of Jesus. Okay, mm-hmm. I, I just ignored it. Then I got a letter about a month ago from um, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. Um, His letter was very long and disingenuous in its tone. But the the gist of it was he found Jesus too. And he really needed some help in getting the word of Jesus out there. Well, on Saturday, I was shocked to get a letter from Gary Leon Ridgway. (gasps) Yes, I did. Wow. The Green River Killer. Wasn't Gary Ridgway a, a not very bright? Not very bright. Okay. Worked in a an auto body shop mm-hmm. and I'm just hated, thinking what a letter from him might be like. Maybe right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Hated, wow. hated, hated women. But it's terrible. Yeah. Killed 49 women, mostly prostitutes, and threw them in the Green River. The reason why I thought I might have some success with him is he cried at his trial. And none of these other guys have any emotion at all. They're, they're clearly psychopaths, right? But he cried all through the trial. Well, this envelope was quite thick that I received from him. And I thought, okay, now I'm going to have something to write about. So I open it up. Dear John, he says, please forgive me for not writing more. I'd like to write more, but I have serious health problems now. So with what little that I can write, I want you to help me spread the word of Jesus. Everyone. (laughs) And the reason it was so thick is because he included 25 pamphlets from the Seventh-day Adventist church. Wow. And he asked me to go door to door in my neighborhood to tell his story. Wow. Uh-huh. About how he has walked away from the sin of our world and he's walking toward the light of the heavenly world. I mean, I was like, doggone you. I thought this was going to be good. It's especially rich, I think, coming from Gary. Because it wasn't Gary Ridgway, one of those guys who was like, oh, well, I'm doing the world a service. That was his justification, right? right? I'm doing the world a service. I'm ridding people of bad people, immoral people. Yeah, exactly. So it's not really, you know, viewed from some angles, not much of a change for old Gary, right? Yes. Um, Wow. Yeah. Uh, A friend of mine said, what are you going to do with these letters? You've got these letters by these notorious, you know, either serial killers or mass murderers. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do with them? And I said, well, they don't have any like academic interest. I can't use them in a book. Although a friend of mine said, actually, maybe the book is how these phonies found Jesus. I mean, maybe the book is, you know, 
is there a you know like who's who's there who's in prison bringing these guys to to right. light and uh, to which light exactly and who yeah. has you know who has access to people and who doesn't although i don't know that you're going to have a a fight for the souls of some of the most depraved and vicious people right. in the country i that, just happen that might to be worth exploring yeah so yeah there's a there's a site called murderauction.com it's like the ebay of murder memorabilia didn't Ted Bundy in the at some point in the end say, oh, no, uh, actually, I did this all because of the scourge of pornography and yeah. because I saw pictures of naked people exactly from concentration right. camps? Pornography mm. made him. Do- I mean, they'll say anything. I just listened to a uh, over the weekend while we're on this grim topic, uh, listened to a couple hours worth of uh, podcasting about Randy Kraft, Ooh. who is a terrible person and one that i hadn't heard of it's funny how like some of these some of these guys get so much attention and some don't i think of course a lot of it has to do with randy craft most mostly killing gay men and being gay himself yes um but yeah wow that came out of that came out of nowhere wow i connected on facebook with the daughter of um of uh the ice man uh kuklinski oh yeah and she said something interesting um they suspected that his father, that her father was a hitman for the mob, but they also suspected that he was just out there killing people because he enjoyed killing people. Mm-hmm. And so she and her mom decided that they were going to kill him while he was sleeping. They were going to stab him to death to save whatever his future victims would be. Right. And she said the next day the cops busted down the door and grabbed him and he got life without parole and, huh. and died in prison. Pretty nuts. Yeah. Did you? Ha- are you still waiting for letters from some people? Yeah, I'm still waiting for. I, I, I mean, was, what are you? What are you asking them? Just hey, can you tell me your story? Well, what the, the what first, are you asking? The, what I what I wanted to do in the first communication was establish my bona fides. Right. I, I'm I'm a serious author. I've written seven books. I've made the New York Times bestsellers list. I was in the CIA for 15 years, but I've also been in prison, and so. Do you need, you know, a a magazine subscription? Do you mind if I ask you some questions? You know, stuff like that. And I'm still waiting for for the BTK killer, um, bind, torture, kill. He he was particularly depraved, like even by serial killer standards. Yeah. In that he killed children as easily as he did adults. Um, And I'm waiting for uh, what's his name, the co-ed killer. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ed Gein? No, no. No, not Ed Gein. I always say that. I always say Ed Gein. It's not Ed Gein. Ed Kemper. Ed Kemper. Thank you. I'm still waiting for Ed Kemper. Although I I heard that um, he he records books for Audible. And so he's very busy. Well, maybe maybe you'll get around to it. Uh, We have a couple (laughs) last words. I've just gotten um, the uh, statement on the budget, Biden's budget that he's proposing. Gigantic. Gigantic budget. It has another... One and a half billion dollars for support for Ukraine. Um, it's that that was the m- most notable. Then I'm looking through here. You know, it's got some climate two two point three billion to support the climate support addressing the climate crisis through diplomacy, and then some other things support to developing countries. I don't know. Yeah, that was. You the, know, I read in Politico when this first broke a couple of hours ago that um, it's a sop to the to the progressives. That you ask for double what the budget is going to end up being, the progressives progressives are happy, and then in the uh, budget committees in both the House and the Senate, uh, they cut all that stuff out, 
And so the the left ends up getting nothing, but at least it looks like he tried to give them something and then you get an actual real budget. Another nearly $2 billion uh, to implement the Indo-Pacific strategy to support a free, open, connected, secure, and resilient Indo-Pacific region and $400 million for the Countering PRC Malign Influence Fund, which sounds, that sounds like a propaganda what? network. Yeah, for sure. But all this... The free, open, connected, and secure just sounds like, uh, you know, throwing some money to, to NGOs. Yeah, that's uh, what it countering, sounds like. Countering China's influence in countries in their own neighborhood. You know, speaking yep. about countering influence, mm-hmm. too, I was reading in Politico this morning a complaint that that Putin is shutting down opposition media. And did you know that you can't even get BBC in in Russia? Mm-hmm. Well, you can't get RT in America. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what's the difference? Actually, there was just a story that a uh, Russian court, let me see which of my many tabs it's in, but uh, Russia had tried to shut down Facebook meta, right? So Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and a court has just said, nope, if you're, if you're not doing something that is illegal, then you can't prevent people from using these, these apps. I think Russia is trying to figure out how to... Uh, charge Meta with something criminal. Um, but for the time being, the, a judge has said you can't just sort of blanket shut these apps down. And people were sad, you know, people were sad about losing those means of communication. The I other, have, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I have a friend who lives in, in Moscow and we communicate regularly. She's an, she's not American, actually. She's New Zealand, mm-hmm. uh, New Zealander. Um, and she said that, uh, that WhatsApp, which is also owned by Meta, it sort of comes and goes. It's mm-hmm. on, it's not on. And she's finding now the same thing happening with Twitter. Mm-hmm. We also had news. Uh, this is the Wall Street Journal breaking this story, anonymously sourced, that uh, oligarch, Russian oligarch Roman uh, Abramovich and Ukrainian peace negotiators suffered symptoms of suspected poisoning yep. after a meeting in Kiev earlier this month. Uh, I don't think anyone has talked about this on record. And I also have seen reports that uh, Ukrainian members of this party have said, no, that didn't really happen. But in the the first story in the Wall Street Journal here, at the very end, it said, uh, they've updated it now, so there's way more text. But at the very end, it said, like, people don't know what it could be, this, this, or this, or maybe electro, some kind of electromagnetic or radiation. And I thought, oh, they're going to try to gonna try to Havana syndrome this one. So we'll have to see. Yeah. I, they have up now a much longer story here in the journal. It's been picked up lots of places. We'll see how that one plays out. You know, it reminds me of this article that, that we saw in, in the Washington Post and in Politico three or four weeks ago about uh, the Trump White House uh, employee who claimed that she was a victim of this electromagnetic whatever Mm -hmm. beamed at her. She said as she was coming out of a building across the street from the new executive office building, which is where the McDonald's is down by the Metropolitan Club, Mm -hmm. she came out of the building and immediately felt nauseous and got a headache. It's like, okay, so yeah. maybe you your blood sugar was low no. or you had the flu. Uh, but, you know, we're just supposed to take your word for it that it was radioactive uh, microwaves being beamed at your head. I'd come just on. like to note also that we were able to uh, come up with funding for all of the people who say they have experienced Havana syndrome. Uh, still haven't come up with funding so that we can get more COVID tests ahead of what is. I think it will be interesting to see how this. Omicron variant wave 
turns out, right? Yep. Whether there is enough immunity here uh, that it really isn't what it is in the UK and in Europe right now, or if it actually does become another wave where we see significant numbers of people getting sick. Um, we'll see. But y- either way, funding for funding for testing for people who aren't insured is wrapping up. And who knows what else, what other programs are going to start winding up within days because they haven't figured out how to pass that funding without taking it back from states and municipalities, which is what Democrats had objected to in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one other story here I wanted to get to. Oh, it looks like uh, New York is going to, um, New York's going to shell out for a new stadium for the Bills. $1.6 billion for a new stadium. When did it become a thing for the taxpayers to buy private football teams, new stadiums? I think the great, um, pot, I think the great podcast citations needed uh, has an episode on uh, stadiums. Oh, I'd like to hear stadiums. that. They have a great one on lotteries, state uh, lotteries, I, a subject I never thought I would have any interest in. And uh, I think I was like, I didn't have anything else to listen to. And I was like, fine, I'll listen to this stupid lottery podcast. And it was fascinating. Yeah, it's going to be an $850 million uh, public subsidy. It, that apparently is a record. This is, of course, all pending approval uh, from the state budget and the NFL. I've got to imagine the, the NFL is going to be happy. Right. Oh, you know, we also didn't talk about is Prince William and Kate Middleton very awkwardly uh, touring the Caribbean. Yeah, and, very uh, awkwardly. I mean, this might be, I wonder if this will be the last uh, such tour because it was there were protests everywhere. There were repeated calls for reparations for slavery, uh, demands for change a la, what was it, um, Barbados? Yes. That officially said no more, you know, yeah, so uh, long. goodbye to the queen. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I cannot imagine taking part in something like that. I mean, no, I'm also not a royal. I, I felt bad uh, but, for them. The, the video of Yeah, you uh, don't feel so bad for them because, uh, <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think. humiliating. I don't think you should feel bad for them. They should exit. <laughs> they should say, no, we're not going to be part of this. Is obviously all of our wealth comes from, all of our wealth comes from, you know, exploiting and enslaving yes. and, and killing people. We'd all just pretend that's not how it happens. <laughs> and then we're going to go right. on this goodwill tour to a bunch of the countries that we colonized and now, you know, we're, we're now in this commonwealth with, oh, just flat, flat embarrassing. Um, so, yeah, they're they're at least done with that. I'm glad they went through it. Yeah, all right. it's good. We got to get out of here. Thanks for uh, being with us on a Monday. Thanks to all of our guests. Thanks to the engineers and production team here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>